Hello, I'm Pastor Zach Hoffman, and I'm the pastor at Good Shepherd Lutheran Church in Gainesville, Georgia, where we seek to know Christ and love one another. We do this by witnessing faithfully, transforming our homes into places where the Word of God dwells, and by investing in the communities around us. We hope that you enjoy this podcast, and if you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning, our service times are at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. God's blessings. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. Our sermon text today comes from Genesis chapter 18, verse 23, where it says, Abraham drew near and said to him, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? This was the last question I got in our Tough Questions series. As I mentioned to you every Sunday and even earlier, I had you all write out your toughest questions and on a little postcard-sized thing on Easter morning and hand them in to me. And this question actually came in late. It came in some time after Easter. And so it was a member of our church handed me this card with this question. How can a loving God create and condemn somebody? And so I looked at that. I knew that that was a question that we, that we should talk about. And so I went right away and checked out what we had coming up for that Sunday, for the next Sunday that was available, which is today. What were the readings for that? We follow, of course, a three-year lectionary here. And what's amazing about the sermon series is that the questions that you've asked me have sort of lined up almost every week with something that was in our scheduled readings. And so it happened that as I have this question in front of me, how can a loving God create and condemn somebody? I checked to see the readings, and sure enough, there's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Really? Thanks. <laughs> but actually, it might just be the text we need this morning. For as difficult a story as it is, for as complex as it is, for all of its many facets, it might be just what we need. And we should take this story seriously, and, and this story should, in many ways, make us uncomfortable. And as we look at it, we should also consider that people who have read this story have found this story of Solomon and Gomorrah to be sort of a watershed moment in their faith. For many, this story has, has sort of pushed them over the edge into unbelief. They can't make sense of it. They can't understand why God would do such a thing to these people over here in Sodom. And so many have walked away from the Christian faith. Many sincere people have come by this story as naturally as they did Genesis chapters 1 through 17. They were just reading along in their Bibles, and all of a sudden they come up to this, and they've never read it before. And they come out of this story with questions and concerns over what God did. And we should know that people who really struggle with this and other like stories, they're not a part of some sophisticated atheist spy network whose mission is to ruin your small group Bible study. But they, can't, but they come by these questions honestly. And so often, when it comes to questions like these and stories like these, people have found very few answers in the church. And they felt alone in their concern about a God who destroyed a city like Sodom and a city like Gomorrah. not only that, this story of Sodom and Gomorrah has a bad history of interpretation. There's so many that read this with just a flat reading that the story has one point, and the point of the story is this, don't do that. And typically that don't do that is referring to homosexuality, and so 
people will, will take this story and they'll go up to political rallies and parades and throw food and rocks and acts, do acts of violence to people who are gay because they feel like God gives them permission to in this story. So this story has a bad taste in many people's mouth. In fact, one of my big concerns about preaching on this story is that we do take it seriously. Uh, because the way we're set up is far too easily to just hear this, hear the, the nice little sermon, it's going to be excellent, you know, and then you're going to shrug and you're just going to move on with the liturgy. Being separated by, by time and, and distance from a people who you don't know, never did know, never could know. So I guess what I want to do is, as we get started with the whole idea, the whole story of Sodom and Gomorrah is present to you this one idea. And because this one idea takes this past ancient story and brings it not only into our present, but also into our future. By destroying the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, this is one of the ways that God has opened up a window to his future judgment of the world. What we see happening in Sodom is just a little snapshot of what will come when Christ returns. We see not just a past event, but something that is ahead now, and something that determines how we should live and what we should believe in these moments, in our present. So let's look at, at this city and see what was really going on and see what God really did when it comes to Sodom and Gomorrah. We start that by sort of studying the city itself, Sodom. There were four different sources of evidence against the city of Sodom. The first is the outcry. That was in the first line of your Old Testament reading. In verse 20, God said that there was an outcry against the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. That outcry had reached his ears. He had heard it. And the grammar there, that outcry, is, is in perfect tense, and that's kind of an ongoing and continuous outcry. In other words, it's not as if Sodom had sinned once and God said, that's it, you're done. But this is an ongoing outcry. And whenever we hear the word outcry in the Bible, usually it's referring to some type of oppression or violence. The blood of Abel cried out from the ground to God. The people of Egypt cried out to God, and God heard their cry while they were enslaved under the, under the oppression of Pharaoh. Whenever there's an outcry, it's usually one of those two things, oppression, violence. And there was continuous and ongoing oppression and violence in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So the grammar of verse 20 suggests that's one thing. The second thing is that if God investigated the situation, he said, I'm going to go down and see if what I'm hearing matches the reality of the city. And so he sent two angels into the city to investigate. We read about that in Genesis chapter 9. They go into the city to see what is going on. And these angels witness for themselves the evil of the city of Sodom. Third thing is Lot's behavior. Lot was a relative of Abraham, and he happened to live in the city of Sodom at this time. And he's out there by the gates, and as soon as he sees two new people, these two angels that appeared as men, coming into the city, Lot gets nervous. You can read it in the text. Lot is saying, hey, why don't you come and stay with me? No, you need to stay with me. Because if you stay out here in the square, bad things will happen. I know it because I live here. 
looking at Lot's words, looking at his behavior, you know that the situation is dark and grim. And then, once Lot brings these two angels into his house, we come to the fourth source of evidence against the city of Sodom. It tells us that every man, Genesis chapter 19 tells us that every man in the city, everyone, every man in the city, gathered outside of Lot's door. That they might take these two visitors and do what they please to him. One thing we can know about this right away is that it goes far beyond the sin of just homosexuality. This was murder and violence and a deeper and darker form of sexual sin. So what do we take from that? Well, a couple things. There is nobody good the city of Sodom. Not one person was good. And you might say, well, what about Lot? Didn't he, didn't he try to save those angels? And yeah, he did. He brought them into his home, and that was a good thing that he did in that moment. But also, as the pressure continued to build upon him, as the men gathered around his home, demanding that Lot surrender his new guests, Lot offered his two daughters to take their place. That's ugly. That's horrific. No one was really good in the city of Sodom. And no one had been good for a long time. In fact, it might be fair to ask, what would we sacrifice about our God if we said, or if we told the story differently and said, God let it slide? It might be, it might be easier to say that we have a God that is loving and accepting and kind and all that stuff, but we could have no claim that God was just. We have no claim that God is fair. We have no claim for any future hope of justice, or oppression, or violence. And we could also ask what would happen if God allowed the city to endure? How would it have shaped the world in its time? And how, in so many untold ways, would it be affecting our world even now? God acted not lightly in destroying Sodom. And I think, as we'll, read, as we'll see later, that God really didn't even want to destroy the city of God. It's not Sodom. It's not his desire that sinners should die. His creatures, whom he loves, all of them, should suffer torment and hell. And yet God is also just. So, as we look at the city of Sodom, then we also have to recognize a couple things about ourselves. If there is no good person in the city of Sodom, then there's no good person among us either. Who of us hasn't turned away from the voices in our lives that call us to do good, willfully ignoring them so that we can who of us hasn't tried to redefine evil so that it sounds better to suit our own purposes? Who of us, whenever someone has tried to stand in our way to stop us from doing something wrong, 
having grown enraged at them. More than that, even if we aren't violent ourselves, we know that we've been far too silent to the violence that happens around us, to the oppression that happens around us. We haven't always spoken up. We haven't always said the things that we need to say. In many ways, we are very least complicit. And as I mentioned before, while, while this story is aimed so often as a weapon against a certain people in a certain community, it's actually aimed at all of us, the truth of it. Whether you are gay or straight or tall or short, no matter what nation you come from, no matter what race you are, no matter what, what culture you're, you're part of, this story points it right at us. We recognize that we, even on our best days, are far more like the citizens of Sodom than we are the righteous judge who is God and Lord. And that's the deep, sticky, uncomfortable truth. So then, we can't play the hero in the story of salvation either. When it comes to our salvation, we can't play the hero. In fact, actually, as we look at the city of Sodom, as we look at what went on in order for one person to be saved, Lot had to be physically grabbed twice to get going. Once, when Lot went outside to see, to confront these hostile visitors who surrounded the house, who wanted his two new guests, he went outside, they started to grow angry, and so these angels threw open the door, grabbed Lot, and brought him back in, or else he would have died. But not only that, but after the destruction of the city becomes imminent and obvious, Lot still hesitates, so that also in Genesis chapter 19, the angels have to grab him and get him out of the city along with the rest of his family. There is nothing we can do and there's nothing we would do. So deep and stuck in sin are we. Thanks be to God then, that Christ has put his hands on us through the waters of baptism, who has made us his child, who has given us his full and free forgiveness. Without his action, without his work, we would have nothing but condemnation. And then, though, if we're looking for some kind of example, some kind of way we can sort of sink our teeth into the story about how we are to live now, then we would have to turn to, well, Abraham. If you know much about Abraham, Abraham really wasn't the most righteous person himself. I'll allow you to read all those stories, but he wasn't exactly the best either. But here, he definitely is doing what he needs to do. You have Abraham, who was brought up to a hillside by the Lord. Two angels go down to the city of Sodom, but Abraham and the Lord remain on this hillside, staring over the city. And Abraham reacts the same way, I hope that we all would, at God's announcement of judgment and destruction of the city of Sodom and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is shocked and horrified. And he challenges God. In verse 23, he says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Will you do it? Are you actually going to do it? But then, Abraham doesn't give up. And Abraham is bold. And as we see Abraham begin to ask God about the righteous, we recognize that he's really trying to save the entire city. He's not making a case for the righteousness of the city, which as a man who is a future father and also a current husband, that should tell you something about Sodom in and of itself. 
but he's not pleading on their behalf entirely. But he's coming up to God and he's saying, look, what about 50 righteous people? If there are 50 righteous people, would you save the city? See what he's doing. He's actually bargaining on behalf of the whole city. He's not making a case for the righteousness, but he's still bargaining that they might be saved. But what if five people are on vacation and a couple are sick? What about that? Would you still save the city? So God continues, or Abraham continues to work God from 50 all the way down to 10. For as bold as Abraham was in his prayers for those who were condemned, for those who were living in their sins, we can be all the more bold. You see, this meeting had to be arranged by the Lord. The Lord had to set it up. The Lord took Abraham off to this hill. The Lord allowed his two angels to go down into the cities or the city of Sodom so that Abraham and the Lord could speak on the top of the hillside. It was the Lord who came to visit Abraham in the first place. In this one moment, Abraham had this opportunity to plead on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. Thanks be to God, through his son Jesus Christ, a meeting place for us is kept open at all times, for all people. That the special arrangement has already been made and has been set in stone and the door is now open forever. Christ, who has died for you, is also your mediator. When you cry out to God, Christ also pleads with you before his Father. It is Christ who takes you before God the Father so that your prayers might be heard. And those prayers are always heard. That is one of the sincere promises we have in Scripture. That we are prayer without ceasing, Paul tells us. So what I want to do now is actually to challenge you. If you are praying for the people in your lives that you know, the, the people whose stories and backgrounds you understand, and, and the people who, who you are close to, that they might come to know Jesus, I don't want to discourage you from doing that. I want to encourage you to do that. I want you to continue doing that and not give up. I know that many of us, myself included, have family members and relatives that we've been praying for for decades. They might finally turn or come back to the faith. Don't give up. Be bold in those prayers. But what I want to press you into further boldness. And I want to challenge you and ask you this. And maybe you already are doing this, so please don't take offense to the question, but I know this always hit me well. Pray not just for the people who you know, who don't know Jesus, the people you understand. Pray for those people who are far different from you, that they might come to know Jesus. Pray for the people who you don't get. Pray for the people who irritate you. Pray for the people who you once thought, you know what, life would be better if we would just sit down and be quiet. Pray for your enemies, that they might come to know Jesus. Be that bold in your prayers. Go further. Pray for the world. God will hear it. And the meaning place is always on. In preparing for the sermon, I actually spoke to somebody I know who is very close to the homosexual community. And again, 
the story really isn't about that. We've already talked about that. But yet, this story has left a bad taste in so many people's mouths. And when we're talking about this one group, we're really talking about many different groups who stand in sin, live their lives apart from Christ. And yet, these groups have a powerful voice. And yet, these groups are made up of real people. And so, in speaking to this person, I was talking to her, and I said, you know, We've had a lot of conversations about this, and we're not going to agree on, on the sin of the matter, on what's good and what's bad, but what's one thing you want the church to say? What was one thing that the church can do to at least strengthen the relationship there? And again, I want you to hear this. We're talking about a person who's close to the homosexual community, but this is for all communities that are different from us. This is for all people that we struggle with in one way or another. And she said to me, I just wish that they would listen that before they speak, they would listen. Her desire was not that we would stand back from our conviction, or that we would just totally say, you know what, we're wrong, you're fine. The first thing that came to her mind was that we would listen. That's easy. It's doable. It's treating other people like human beings. People who are different from us. People who challenge us. And I would encourage us to go further still. For the sake of 50, 40, 30, and then eventually all the way down to 10, God said that he would save the city of Sodom. Perhaps God might be all the more patient if we are willing to best relationships with unbelievers, to know people who view things different from us, to listen to them, to seek opportunities, yes, to tell them about the gospel, while holding on to our convictions all at the same time. It's not easy to do. It's difficult. And there, there are many pitfalls to it. We, we know that there are verses that tell us not to associate with unbelievers, and I would say apply common sense. Don't hang around those who will prey upon your weakness. If you're an addict, don't hang around those who would encourage you in your addiction. If you have a problem with anger or gossip, maybe avoid people that encourage that. But find people who are different. Listen to them. Be willing to invest in a relationship with them. And the opportunities might come to warn in all love. Show the gospel. Show Jesus. And that's just the start. But we still have other problems here. As we look at this story, and as other people look at this story, there are many strong and intelligent voices in our culture that, that tell us that God is being a tyrant, that God is being an evil, despotic ruler here, that God is crushing a city of Sodom that had no chance. And yet, as I read the story, I, I can... I can see how, how somebody might, might come away with that, but as I look at it, I, I have to say that God's behavior is not the behavior of a tyrant. Which tyrant would actually have a conversation with one of his subjects, a subject who he owes nothing to, a subject who is not nearly as wise as he is or as powerful as he is, and, and engage that subject in conversation about what's about to happen, and even permit that subject to offer complaints, to show shock and exasperation, and to pray 
that it might not happen. And this is what we have God doing with Abraham here on the hillside. Which despotic tyrant would actually go and investigate claims and to see what's true rather than just make a decision? Tyrants and evil dictators and all that usually act and behave out of fear, yet I don't see any fear about God losing his power to the city of Sodom here. What we have in the destruction and God's decision about the destruction of the city is something completely different. We have a God who listens, who wants to show compassion. And, and not only that, but another question is, did the people of Sodom have a chance? Again, we're asking these questions because we're looking towards the end. Will we have a chance? Will other people in the world have a chance? And what's funny about this story is that we don't know really how much people in the city knew about God. Of course, they didn't have all 66 of the books of the Bible. They had no books of the Bible at this point. So it's ridiculous for us to say that every person there, you know, had a Bible with them. But at the same time, we don't know what they did know. But we can step back and kind of look at the pattern of things. We have Noah, believing Noah, who preached for years while the ark was being built. And so plenty of warning was, was given to evil people then, but they were stumbling hard and hard of heart and did not repent. If they had been told over and over again. And, and we have in the case of Egypt, people often look at what God did in Egypt with these ten plagues that will happen later in the book of Exodus and say, God is up to it again. He's being entirely again. And yet on more than one occasion, on multiple occasions, God had warned the people of Egypt. Even in these times that we're looking at now, the times of Abraham. Abraham spent time in Egypt, and God revealed himself to that Pharaoh. Not only that, but through Joseph later on in the book of Genesis. God saved Egypt from famine through Joseph's visions and Joseph's warnings. And then Moses comes to Pharaoh and speaks to him many times. Looking at that pattern, I would say that, yeah, God being God and God being consistent in his character, yes. They have warnings. If nothing else, the two angels walked into the city and came right here to take them in. Not only that, but God is always at work in ways throughout the world, revealing himself through his word in ways that surprise us, in ways we don't understand. And sometimes we don't always have the backstory. In the times of Genesis, there was a king named Melchizedek who believed in God, and he came out of nowhere. So God's word is at work in the world, even in this time. Calling sinners to repentance. God does not desire to create and condemn. And if you're struggling with this topic of condemnation, you're struggling with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, I want you to know that as we wrap up today, that look, I have an answer to the question that one could ask about this. I'm painfully aware of that as I wrote this sermon. I mean, we've gone on a little bit long. I see you guys kind of looking around like, oh, I get it. I know, but it's a deep topic. What do you want me to do? And so you have that in this story, a God who at least reveals a little more about who he is and his patience and his compassion and yeah, also in his judgment. But if, you, if you're not quite there yet, if you're still struggling with that, I want you to at least hear this. That the God who reveals patience and compassion, and also who is the God of truth and justice, and the world wants us also to reveal.
reflect that compassion and justice in the world. That, that if we are to speak the truth to people, if we are to warn sinners towards repentance and away from becoming that, we are to do it in love and in humility, not as ones better than them. Again, there are no heroes in the story of salvation among us. And, and if we are to show compassion, it's not for the sake of manipulation, it's not for the sake of adding to our numbers of saying, ha, ah, we got another convert. Putting another sticker on our Christian football helmet. But instead, we're to do it because we sincerely love the people around us. Because Christ sincerely loved us and loves us still for all our many words and sins. But there's one last question. I want you to hang with me. It's going to be short. And it's this. How many would God have saved? How many would have taken for God to save Sodom? How many people? Because we don't really have an answer. Like, how low does that number go? Start off with 50, and we made it all the way to 10 with Abraham. And then after that, the Lord walks away. The conversation was in. So it could have been 9, or 8, or 7, or less. I would tell you that the answer for Sodom of how many it would take is the same answer that it would take to save the whole world today. The number is one. One. One person in whom God delights, whom God would send from his side, one whom he loves, one who would come and walk the streets of sin just as the angels entered into the city of Sodom, but not just for a visit, but we dwell and live and even eat and be the guest of sinners, prostitutes, and standing Weasley tax collectors. One who wasn't afraid to make those who the world called despicable his friend. This Jesus is the one, the one righteous one. And, and he even engaged with people who were violent to people who were in control of their own actions. Not that they might draw to his side or broke his power, but that he might heal them. To end their aggression and end the oppression of others that was happening through them. This Jesus knew what it was like to be an outcast, to, to have friends and family turn against him, to have every word that he spoke twisted, to have every action that he took falsely interpreted. He knew what it was like to suffer injustice. He felt the weight of every other cry. And he wore even the most despised and wicked of sins on his body, like a shirt that clings to the flesh of a human day. But more than that, he even took that in himself. He, as I always tell you, became sin on the cross. He suffered and endured the heat of God's wrath fully and completely. He endured the fiery furnace of the cross. He endured hell itself for the sake of the world. And when God looks at this one righteous man, this one righteous person, he is pleased. 
so often we see God as, as this cruel dictator who just wants everyone to have the right answer at the end. That if you can say Jesus, you'll be saved. And that's oftentimes our view of salvation and our view of condemnation of those who get the answer wrong. But with those who have Jesus in their hearts, by the power of evil inside of them broken, that evil has been overcome. Even though there's a whole city of Sodom's worth of evil dwelling inside of each of us, Christ has come to conquer that and to rule over that and to give us new and living lives. When we reject this grace, when we turn away from it, whether the evil that we do is small and unnoticeable or whether it's huge and terrifying, we set ourselves in a course where our heart is ever more hardened against the one God who is good. The one thing in the whole universe that is good. God. So that in the end, after God's patience towards us, you might find that there are some with heart, their heart completely against every kind of good. Our salvation is a rescue, just as Lot was rescued. Not because of our character, not because of who we are, but because of who God is and how he is faithful to his promises and how he is consistent in his character as a patient, loving, Father, we are saved not because of ourselves. We are saved not because there's so much good inside. There's a whole ocean's worth of evil. But we are saved because of that one. And now because of that one righteous one, we can pray that the whole world 